Now as we start, I want you to do something for me. I will say the beginning of a phrase and I want you to complete it. Alright? It was a blessing in... Good. Every cloud has a... There's light at the end of the... Good. You all know it. See, we use these phrases. Uh, the people around us use these phrases. And sometimes it turns out to be true. Right? Like when I was in JC, uh, I had to take FMATs. Boy, did I struggle with FMATs. But in that class, I met Maria. See, so there's, there's, a, you know, there's a silver lining, you know? Uh, every cloud, there's a really dark cloud, it has a silver lining. But the question is, ultimately, right? Ultimately, is there going to be light at the end of the tunnel? Or for many people, is this going to be your best life now? Because there's no good news. There's nothing good awaiting them at the end of the day. Because it's just going to get worse. You see, for Amos' original audience, that was just the case, right? Page after page, chapter after chapter, God through Amos saying, judgment coming. Right, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no good news after these uh, bad news. There's just going to be utter, complete and final judgment. So let me put the question to us. So ultimately, will there be good news? After all the difficult and bad news that's in your life, ultimately, will there be light at the end of this tunnel. And if you think there will be light, if you think there will be good news ultimately at the end, on what basis do you have that hope? Or, you know, what's the evidence? On what do you place your confidence that there will be light, there will be good news at the end? Now, some of you here may be thinking in your heads, no, I have no hope. I have no hope that there will be light at the end. Uh, Some of you may have hope, but it could turn out to be a misplaced hope. Others of you, and I hope many of you, have hope, and it is hope in the right place. Now, whichever group you are in, Amos 9 will help us. So let's ask God to speak to us through His Word. Let's pray. Father, I acknowledge that my words are completely useless. Only by you, powerfully working through your word by your spirit, can your people be served, can your people hear and be challenged and be encouraged. So Father, I pray, please have mercy and be at work amongst us. For your glory we pray. Amen. So we look at the first point, verses 1 to 6. No escape. No escape. Now, this is the fifth vision uh, that Amos is uh, seeing. And it's different from the rest because it's not God showing him something. He actually sees the Lord himself. Look at verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And most likely this is the altar at the temple of Bethel. Uh, When we last left Amos, he was at that temple 
And so he probably he was there prophesying judgment and then he's at the temple and then he's given a vision of the Lord standing by the altar. And the Lord is saying, strike the tops of the pillars so that the threshold shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Right, it's a clear picture. God is saying, you know, all these pillars that's holding this temple up, strike it. Let it all fall down on, on the, all these priests, all these worshippers. Now, the question that people ask is, who, who is he talking to? Is he talking to some angel to do the striking? Well, we have met time and time again in the book of Amos, this earthquake, right? All the way at the beginning, Amos said he prophesied two years before the earthquake. And again, in different parts of Amos, this earthquake is being referred to. So he's not talking to an angel, he's just saying it, commanding the earth, if you like. And it's an earthquake that's bringing the temple down on all the worshippers. And all those, at the end of verse 1, he says, those that are left, I will kill with a sword. Now, we are not to think that God himself holds a sword and, you know, kills people. Rather, he's using the instrument, uh, we know, of the Assyrian army. Uh, because in 20, 30 years time, after Amos speaks, the Assyrian army comes and they do invade and wipe out Israel. Now, if you happen to be in uh, the UK... And if you go down to the British Museum, you can actually find Assyrian artifacts. You know, these archaeological findings. And on, on one of them, King Sargon, right, because he likes to write his military exploits, he actually wrote down, you know, I, King Sargon, you know, surrounded Samaria, defeated it, exported the people, you know, took away their chariots. You see, this is historical proof etched in stone, proof for all, everyone to see that what God says He will do, He does. The Assyrian army did come and did conquer and invade Samaria. And God continues saying, not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above. Now heavens here, we think of it as space. right? They may go into outer space. But from there, God says, I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel. Carmel is uh, the, the highest mountain. And on the top, there are many caves. But God is saying, you may go up there and hide in those caves, but I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by the enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. You see, what's being spoken of here is the omnipresence of God. That God is everywhere. He's not confined to one particular place, you know, up there in heaven or something. He's, he's everywhere. Now, the, the omnipresence of God, we are used to thinking of it as a good thing. Right? It, it, it's something that brings us much comfort. So, like, for example, when I was in Sydney at the conference, on the first day that Marie and I were there, we found out that uh, Elliot and Sharona, back in Perth, we left them in Perth with my in-laws, he started vomiting. Uh, one after the other, 
And uh, Elliot, in two days, vomited 28 times. He could not hold anything down. So you can imagine, you know, Maria and I, we are miles away from them. You know, between Sydney and Perth is almost the distance between Perth and Singapore. You know, it's, it's far. But we, we could pray. We could cry out to God. We, we, we could not be there with them. But we had the confidence that God, who is, who is everywhere, uh, would hear our prayer, be with them, comfort them, and heal them. See, the omnipresence of God is a comforting thing. But here, here it is used against the people. There's nowhere they can hide. They, they can run to the heights, go down to the depths. There's nowhere they can hide. There is no escape. Now immediately following this, Amos writes a two-verse hymn. He probably quotes a hymn that the people of Israel were familiar with, just like you know, uh, Richmond introduced uh, to us the song, Let Your Kingdom Come. It's probably the, 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 the hymn that was popular in that day. And he quotes these two verses of it, and he says, verse 5 and 6, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He touches the earth and it melts. And all who live in it mourn. How does, how does the earth melt? Well, the next sentence tells us, The whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. You see, again, there's a reference to the earthquake. The Lord touches the earth and this, this, it melts and the earthquake happens. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens. He sets his foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. You see, he quotes this hymn, and it's a hymn most likely that the, the people of God love to sing. They love to sing of this aspect of God, you know, having power over the heavens and the earth, having power over the waters, having the power over Israel's enemies. They love to sing this hymn. But here, Amos is using this hymn against them. You are now God's enemies. And so this, this power of God or, or, over heavens and the earth, over the waters, is now being used against you. There is no escape. It's just like a church that loves to sing, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, let your kingdom come. And then a modern day prophet comes, yes, God's kingdom will come and you will be out of it. God's will will be done and you will not be in the kingdom. It, 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 that's what Amos is doing. He's using this hymn against them. God has the power to carry out what he says. It's not just an empty threat. And so this is a hymn celebrating the power of God to judge. And so verses 1 to 4, we saw God saying, no one escapes. Verses 5 to 6, praise God, no one escapes. Praise God, no one escapes. Now let me ask you, when was the last time that you praised God, no one escapes? See, most of us, many of us, when we praise God, we you know, we tend to praise God for His, His great love, His manifold blessings, His, His mercies, His kindness. We praise God for those things, and rightly so. But we must not forget to praise God for His justice, that His judgments will be carried out. 
Because we must praise God that He is a God who does not tolerate sin. That He is a God who will not let any wrong go unpunished. See, all the wrong that's being done right now. I mean, in the, in the time that we've gathered till now, right, all around the world, can you just imagine in all the secret and dark places of the earth, all the wrong that's being done against children, against women, against, against men, all, in, in Iraq, all the wrong that's being done against our brothers and sisters. God here is saying, no one escapes. No one escapes. And we must praise God. And in fact, Psalm 96, when you get home, have a look at Psalm 96. It begins, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And it goes on, verse after verse, praising God. You know, uh, and, and commanding us to praise God. Sing, ascribe, worship, Say among the nation, the Lord reigns. And in the last verse, the psalmist tells us why we should praise God. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For He comes, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. See, it's a command that we should sing and ascribe and worship God because He is a God of justice. No one escapes. Praise God, no one escapes. Now we carry on to the second point in verses 7 to 10, where Amos tells us there's no special privileges. There's no special privileges. Now here Amos deals with the false view, the, the false view of security that the people had. He says in verse 7, Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? No, oh, who are the Cushites? The Cushites is uh, a tribal group all the way in Ethiopia. Hey, Ethiopia, yeah. Uh, it's a far away group of people. And God is saying, Are you not the same to me as them? And then he says, Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kephtor, and the Aramaeans from Ker? See, yes, you guys experienced the Exodus, your forefathers experienced being brought out of Egypt to here, but you were not the only one. I also brought the Philistines up from Kephtor and the Aramaeans from Ker. You see, what was happening here is that the, the, the people of Israel were beginning to think that because they were God's people, they were Israelites, and because their forefathers had gone through the Exodus, they had this special privilege, they had a special status. And we see there in verse 10 the, the false view of security that they had. Verse 10 All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake us. It will not meet us. Why? Because they had this false view. That just because they were Israelites, just because they, their forefathers had experienced Exodus, oh, there cannot be judgment. Oh, God will preserve us. God will continue to pour out His blessings. It was the fatal sin of presumption. That we don't need to keep the covenant. That we are His people. 
He cannot possibly send us into exile. This is His land. He's given us, given that land to us. But verse 8, Amos says, Surely the eyes of the Sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. Okay, what a ray of hope. This, this hope will be developed in our next section. But here is something that has been hinted at throughout the book of Amos, that there will be a portion that will survive. There will be a remnant that will remain. Amos continues in verse 9, For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. What's being used here is a farming imagery where a sieve was being used to separate uh, the, the precious grain from the impurities of pebbles. And God is saying, all the pebbles will remain in. Not one pebble will get through. Only those that I want to survive, God is saying, will make it through. All the rest will face judgment, will be exiled. You see, it's a warning here against that fatal sin of presumption. It's a presumption that in our day, that some people have where they think that just because I'm baptized, you know, I've had water sprinkled on me or I've been dunked in a swimming pool, or the presumption that some people have that, hey, I come from a Christian family. You know, some may even think, oh, I'm a pastor's kid, right? Uh, or I'm a member of a good church. I'm a, you know, outstanding, upstanding member of the, you know, BTPC. Uh, the, the presumption that just because they have these things, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. That there will be good news at the end of the day. Now, our Lord Jesus dealt with this danger of presumption. And turn with me, if you can, to Matthew chapter 7. And see how our Lord dealt with this danger of presumption. Matthew 7, verse 21. Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. So you see here, the Lord giving this example of, of, of people coming to him, and, and coming with the fatal sin of presumption. Lord, did I not do this? Did I not do this? Did I, they, they came with a presumption that just because they did these things, they would be accepted into the kingdom. Now, if you look at this passage, what to you is the scariest portion of it? 
I think many of you will look at it and say, well, I mean, the last, the last sentence where Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Now that, that, that surely is scary. But recently, I was uh, led to see that there's another word there, which is uh, equally scary. It's that word at the beginning of verse 22, where the Lord Jesus says, many, not just some, not just a few. He says, many, many will come. And so, friends, you, you, if you see this and if you are frightened by the Lord Jesus saying, away from me, I never knew, and you are frightened by the, the Lord's assessment, the Lord's, you know, saying that there will be many who will come, then should we not heed this warning and, and, and examine ourselves? Is there, is there any presumption? Anything that I'm holding on to, you know, that I think will guarantee me entrance into the kingdom, but it's a misplaced hope. I'm putting it on the wrong thing. Whether it's a Christian family, my dad's an elder, my dad's a pastor, or I've been baptized, or, you know, I'm serving in this area, or I've been doing this for the Lord. Make sure that what you are placing your hope in is the right thing. Be warned of this danger of presumption. Pray to God that you will not be part of that many. Now as we move on to the last five verses, we move on to good news. And we move on to how Amos helps us see what is the right place to place our hope. Amos helps us understand how there can be light at the end of the tunnel. So verses 11 to 12, no distinction. No distinction. He says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Now notice that David's uh, fallen shelter we are more used to calling it David's house, right? referring to David's kingdom, David's dynasty. Why does uh, God use the word shelter or tent here? Right? Why not say David's house as it's uh, more commonly known as? I think it's trying to get across the idea that it's, it's fragile. It's been, it's been defeated. It's now weak because the kingdom is divided. The, the, the kingdom is not as great as it's meant to be. But God says, I will restore it. I will bring it up to what it, it, it is meant to be. I will restore its ruins. For what reason? So that they may possess the remnant on Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Now the best commentary, okay, the best commentary on these two verses we had in our responsive reading. Did you notice when we read Acts 15, right at the end, James quotes these two verses from Amos 9. Now what's happening in Acts 15 is uh, the, the Gentiles, all those who are not Jews, are being saved. The gospel is going out to them and, and some Jewish Christians are going, Hey, is this right or not? Huh? Can, can, can this be happening? Then other uh, Jewish Christians are going, 
uh, yes, yes, they can be Christians, but they must become Jews first. They must take on the law of Moses, uh, just as you know we take on the law of Moses. And so they have a council in Jerusalem to discuss this. And James comes and says, hey, we must not put some yoke on them, right? Listen to what the prophet Amos said. And then he quotes verses 11 to 12. Meaning that it was always in God's plan that the salvation would not just be for the people of, uh, for the, for the Jews, but it would go out and include the Gentiles as well. Now Amos 9 says it clearly. Salvation is for the Gentiles too. The spread of the gospel will go to the nations. And that's what God is promising here. That David's dynasty, David's kingdom will be built up. Now it's fallen, now it's weak, now it's fragile, but God will raise it up again. And the nations will stream in. They will be part of this kingdom. The one who sits on David's throne will reign over people from many, many, many nations. That's the, that's the picture that God is giving. And then he goes on uh, in verses 13 to 15. The, the heading I put there is uh, no more wine. No more wine. I'll tell you why that's the heading. But God gives a picture of what life will be like in uh, the kingdom. Verse 13, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. Now what's happening here is the, the reaper, the one who is going out reaping the harvest, he's there doing it and then he looks behind his shoulders and then the guy who is plowing is, is, is just behind him and in fact overtaking him. And it's a picture of one harvest is being brought in, but already people are going out planting, preparing for another harvest because the land is just so fertile, the harvest is just so plentiful. And then the planter, by the one treading grapes. The, the guy is planting, planting, uh, you know, the, 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 vine, the vines. And then the, the one treading grapes is preparing his thing. Hey, why are you, why are you preparing the things? I haven't even planted the thing and you're treading grapes. But the picture is, no, no, no. It's so fast that there's already grapes to be treaded, even though the guy is still only planting. It's a picture of abundance. It's a picture of great fertility, a great, great blessing on the land. And then verse 13 goes on, New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will once again inhabit the land, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens, eat their fruits. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted. From the land I have given them, says the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of Israel now in exile by being brought back. And the promise is that the land will be fertile and they will never, never again be uprooted. And the question is, when will this happen? Now, Israel was exiled. And after some time, they did come back to the land. But when they came back, it was it was never as good as what's described here. When will this happen? Well, look at verse 13 and the end of it, where it says, New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Right, what's that a picture of? 
I mean, when you try and imagine it, new wine dripping from the mountains, it's, it's a great abundance of wine. There's going to be a lot of wine. There's going to be a lot of good wine. And when I look at this, my mind is brought to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, I'll give you time to turn to it if you want. But I remember as a young Christian, my first book of the Bible that I read was John. And you know, when I came to John chapter 2, it's like, okay, what's happening here, right? He, uh, but you know, over the years, I know, and I'm seeing more things. And, and now reading Amos, this abundance of wine, God giving this picture of, of this new kingdom, this, this land that He's bring them into, this abundance of wine. And, and here in John chapter 2, Jesus is there at the wedding in Cana, and they run out of wine. And his mother comes and says to him, verse 3, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. And Jesus goes, oh, why do you involve me? You know, my time has not yet come. But then what Jesus proceeds to do is he, he tells the servants to prepare six jars. And each jar holds about 130 liters of water. Fill them with water and he turns the water into wine. And, and, and the, and the MC, Okay, at the wedding, says, Hey, this is the best wine I've ever had. And John reflects on all this, and at the end, he says in verse 11, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs. You get that? The first. It means prior to this, Jesus had not performed any signs pointing to who he is, what he's about, what he's going to do. This is the first through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Turning water into wine. And he revealed his glory. I mean, water, once it was water, now it's wine. And John says, and he revealed his Through this, his disciples saw all that he is, all that he's going to do. How? I mean, it's just water turning to wine. I mean, some in uh, Pharaoh's court back in Egypt, those magicians, you know, the tall one and then the fat one. I mean, they could have done it too. But John is saying, by Jesus turning water to wine, he revealed his glory. Why? Because of this prophecy in Amos 9, that when God brings in his kingdom, when God uh, you know, begins to fulfill this promise, there will be an abundance of wine. And the first of his signs. Jesus turns water into wine. It is a sign signaling that he, he is the one who will bring in God's kingdom. He is the one that will, that will reign on David's throne. He is the one that will fulfill all of God's precious and bountiful promises. He is the one that's going to make it happen. It begins here. It begins with him coming. And after turning water to wine, Jesus proceeded to heal the sick, heal man's bodies of his infirmities and frailty, and even overcoming death, raising people who are dead. Having power over demons, having power over the storm, and eventually going to a cross 
dying there with his arms outstretched because he was bearing the sins of the world upon himself and rising again to new life as proof that God has kept his promise that this this picture, this promise made in Amos 9 and many promises has now been fulfilled in him because he has taken sin, defeated it, defeated death and new life in God's kingdom can be available for all who trust in him. Why can, why, why can there be good news? Why can we have hope that there will be good news? Because of Jesus. Because of what he has done and all those who hope and place their trust in him. Not just in what they do for him. Not just that they gather in, you know, with his people. Not just that they get baptized according to his command, but trust him. It's a big difference between just doing all those things and actually trusting him. Heed the warning against presumption. Do you actually trust Him? Do you have faith in Him? Can this faith be seen? If there's a video camera following you, you know, the last six weeks of your life is projected on this screen here. Will there be enough evidence that you are a person of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now I want to end by telling you about one of the countries because we read here that uh, you know God will bring in many nations. I want to tell you about one nation. One nation that I've been doing a bit of reading about and it's the nation of North Korea. Uh, one of the books that I read about North Korea is about uh, a person who was born in a concentration camp. Okay, He wasn't just, you know, uh, brought in. He was actually born there. He had no knowledge of life outside the fences. But uh, eventually, he escaped and made his way to South Korea and eventually to America. And so he, he, he tells his story and because of him and others like him, we have an idea of what the concentration camps of North Korea are like. So at the age of six, because North Korea doesn't have money to buy fertilizers, all the children of the concentration camp, uh, they are made to go during winter time to dig and uh, hack out the human feces. Because it's already frozen, they need to hack it out and bring it to the fields to fertilize the fields. And they do this without gloves and there's no soap. You know, children at the age of you know, the, the kids that are now in Sunday school made to do things like this and, and they're given you know, barely enough food to survive. And they are given one new change of clothes a year. And that, clo that, that, that clothing will last them for two months before it starts to, you know, uh, tear. And they only have one set for, for the year. And they go through all sorts of torture and, and being beaten. That's life in a concentration camp. And as you know, if the authorities find out that you are Christian in North Korea, that's where you go. Now, another book that I read was about a Christian family in North Korea. And it was how the gospel was passed on from generation to generation in that family. Now, when uh, the Kim dynasty 
took rain, it became very dangerous to even tell your children the gospel. Because the kindergarten teachers would be instructed from time to time to test the children. Say, okay, children, any of you pray to God before you have your meals. And then, you know, the four-year-old, five-year-old will, yes, we do. And then that's it. The police will just come in the middle of the night and that family will disappear into the concentration camp, never to be seen again. So you can imagine how difficult it is to even pass on the gospel to the next generation. So some of you parents who are struggling with doing that, I say take courage. So it's a story about how uh, this, the grandparents, okay, the elderly mother and father, they have passed on the faith to uh, the next generation. And this next generation with their children are trying to defect to South Korea. And because they have no money, the part of the book tells them, tells about how they, you know, God answers prayers and through a series of miracles, you know, the God just not looking and this and that, they, they make it to South Korea. And in South Korea, um, when you arrive there and it's, uh, and you are seen to be a genuine defector, the government gives you money. And so with this money, they arrange for a first class exit <clears throat> for, you know, for their parents who are now in their 80s, you know, the, the grandparents. Uh, that's, that's a e- e- economy way to get out of North Korea and that's a first class way. So with the money that they have, they arrange for a first class way, which is the people who just come, pick up these two 80-year-olds, uh, you know, Christians, uh, drive them in a car, pay off the guards and, you know, you, you, you carry them on their backs across the river into China and from China to, to South Korea. And that's a first class way. And so they paid the money and they were supposed to arrive uh, on the 10th of January, 2011. See, that was, that's my birthday, 10th January, that's why, that's why I know. But, but days passed, and there's no news. And so, they, they call up, uh, you know, their neighbors, and they find out that these two elderly, uh, couple did not make it. You see, and when I read it, I thought, how, how come? I mean, the, 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 the you know, the parents with the young kids, it, going by economy, no money, and you know, God could answer their prayers and bring them across. And then this, this elderly couple, first class, got people carrying them, got people paying off the guards, and, and they can't make it. Why? And then the, the, the lady who's writing this, this, this book says, somewhere in a concentration camp, Someone is hearing for the first time of how people are created. They are hearing of the first time of Noah's Ark. They are hearing for the first time of Jesus Christ. Because God loves people so much that He will send His 80-year-old hunchback servants into a concentration camp so that they can hear the good news. Yes! Friends, this is how much God loves people. And you see, page after page of this judgment in Amos. And then right at the end, we get grace. Why? Some people say, no, Amos could not have written verses 11 to 15. But they are so wrong. 
God sets His grace in a context of judgment so that we can see just how precious, just how amazing His grace is that, that He loves people so much that He sent His Son. That He's sending you and I to different places. He sent you somewhere, right? You are in a specific place where God has sent you. And He has sent you there because He loves the people around you so much that He sent you there. That through, through you, they may hear the God who loves them and who has sent His Son for them. And of a God who has this grand and majestic purpose of gathering the nations under His Son, enjoying life in abundance and prosperity in the new heavens and the new earth. Where has the Lord sent you? Do you know how much He loves you? Do you know how much He loves the people around you? May God help us to do so.